Community, we spent the summer lamenting together, 10 weeks in lament uh, material in the Bible, and now we're taking a deep breath and changing gears into a letter that's all about hope. I think a great follow-up to a series where we were trying to be honest about the brokenness of the world is a series where we're trying to look ahead to what God has promised to do about that brokenness we've lamented together this summer. So First Peter is what we're going to spend the next, uh, is the letter we're going to spend the next four months, roughly, unpacking together. And I'm so excited to introduce it to you this morning. Um, one of the most precious treasures that, that God has given his church are, are letters. Letters that were written in the earliest years of the church, soon after Jesus had been killed, raised to life again, and then taken from earth by his father. Soon after that, those that he left behind to set up the local church and to teach it how to be faithful to Jesus until he comes back, started writing letters to pastor people that they couldn't see face to face. Those letters, by God's grace, were protected for 2,000 years so that our church right here today could still learn from them, benefit from the things that they teach, and learn how to, to be faithful to the message that, that they hold out for us. What, what these letters produce uh, for us are little snapshots of what was happening at one time and place, things that are happening to this one people at this crucial time in the history of the church that were hoping on Jesus in the time that, that, and place that he had put them. So the letters are always rooted in some other world, different from ours, a place that people had different assumptions and, and different ways of understanding and living, different kinds of things that made up their days, different perspectives. And we want to honor that and be careful about, about understanding the letter in light of who it was first written to. So that's true on one side. But then on the other side, what we have here are letters that have been timeless in their uh, impact on churches separated by not just decades and centuries of, of history, but in every culture across the face of the earth. Christianity has been remarkably able to adapt to places completely removed from one another in every measure of human society, language, culture, ethnicity, time, place. This, this, this church has taken root. These letters have spoken. So what we're doing is trying to understand a letter that has a context, but then we're also trying to understand how it can fit in our context because we trust it's been given to all of us throughout all time while we wait for Jesus to come back. That's what our job's gonna be as we approach this letter. We trust that God always works in history, that, that he does specific things at specific times using specific people, and that, that our understanding of what he's doing requires us to pay attention to who he was working in and who he was working through and why. In other words, to understand the Bible, it, it, you got to practice empathy. You have to try, to try to understand something from someone else's perspective to get to its message. You have to work to understand who's writing and who they're writing to and why they're writing and, and, and to work against taking things we already believe, things we already assume about the world and sort of imposing them on a letter that, that's different from us, that has a different perspective from a different time and place. So we're going to practice empathy together as we study this letter. But, but the remarkable thing that you're going to find, I think, if you're, if you're able to stick with us through this series, is that, is that when we do the work to try to understand a letter that's from another time and another place, not our own, when we actually find its message in this specific time and place that God chose to communicate it, we'll find something that's timelessly relevant, that gives us hope, no matter what we're facing now. Something that has a power that, that's unlike any other text known to human history. We're going to try to do both of those things today. Understand 
a letter in its own time and place and then draw from it to apply to our time and our place. And what we like to do when we start a new series here at Trinity is to spend the first week of that series giving an overview of the whole thing what we're going to try to learn together over the next several months from this letter. And in this case, uh, fortunately, conveniently, Peter writes a a greeting. The first two verses of the first chapter of this letter pretty much hit the main themes of the letter. They're buried in it, embedded in it in ways that I'm going to try to draw out for you this morning. So what we're going to do is try to walk really word by word through the first two verses of this letter to try to cast a big picture of what we're going to do together over the next few months. And we're going to answer, try to answer two basic questions that we should always ask of letters that were written in another time and place. Where does this letter come from? What's its, what's its context? And then what does this letter say? What's its message? What should we prepare ourselves to, to learn this, this coming fall? That's what I want to do this morning. I want to invite you first to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first two verses of Peter's first letter. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Two questions we want to answer this morning. Where does the letter come from and what's this letter about? We provided those questions in the back of your worship guide. If you want to follow along there, you can take some notes to try to capture the answers. I think that this sermon could be useful for you uh, moving forward too, to to, to sort of orient you to the series as we move through it week by week. I want to start with this first question. Where does this letter come from? This is something we always try to do when we start a new book of the Bible. What is this context? What's the history behind it? And answering this question well is going to take us into three, different, three other questions. We're going to consider something about who wrote this letter, why, who they wrote it to, and why they wrote it in the first place. Who wrote it, who'd they write it to, why'd they write it in the first place? Fortunately, that first question, who wrote this letter, is pretty easy to answer. I mean, that letter tells us right there at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote this letter. Now, a lot of times there's been some debate here and there about whether or not it really was written by Peter. But the, 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 the testimony of the early church, the earliest ones to get this letter and to circulate this letter, is all in agreement that Peter, the same Peter that knew Jesus, lived with him, listened to him, watched him die, and saw him when he had risen again, is the Peter who wrote this letter. It's one of Jesus' first disciples, a leader among his disciples, a leader who was complicated who is both one of his most fierce, staunch advocates and one of his most fickle followers. A leader who, who was there first charging into battle one minute and the next minute denying that he even knew Jesus when the rubber met the road at Jesus' crucifixion. He was one who denied Jesus and then been forgiven by Jesus when he saw Jesus live again. And he's one who was transformed, utterly transformed from a fearful cowering, despairing shell of a man just after Jesus had been killed into a fearless, death-defying witness to Jesus, the Messiah, after he'd seen him for himself resurrected. 
Peter was one of the most, two or three most important voices in the early church. His job was to define for all the rest of us what it means to follow Jesus. What has Jesus offered? What's he promised? He knew, he heard it for himself. And what does it look like to follow him faithfully? That was Peter's job, and that's the job he takes up in this letter, and we're going to try to listen to him together this fall. And who is he writing to? Well, this part's also really interesting and helpful for us to know. He mentions several places. He mentions places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. All you need to know about those places is that they cover a vast amount of territory, all of which is in modern-day Turkey. So if you take the, the, the map of modern Turkey... You can find, uh, if you look at the, at the first century when this letter was written, you'll see modern Turkey divided into these exact areas that Peter mentions. They were places, that uh, little provinces that the Roman Empire had used to divide up that territory and put governors over each one uh, to, to help rule their empire, which was too, too big and too wide for one guy in Rome to be able to rule by himself. He had to set up governors to, to manage it all. So these were units of that particular part of Rome's empire managed by by governors. The interesting thing about them, though, is that these, these regions were very different from one another. You're talking about people that were in urban centers and people who were, who were very rural, a wide variety of tribes, different ethnic backgrounds, different customs and traditions that would have marked their lives, different expectations about what the world is like. They weren't like one another. And one of the most interesting things about this part of the world is that as far as we know, no apostle, none of Jesus' disciples had actually traveled there to tell people about Jesus. Somehow the gospel was spreading into places that had no reason to take it seriously. Places that didn't, weren't prepared for it by the teaching of the Old Testament Places that had beliefs about the world that just couldn't account for a man who would come back to life after he was really dead. There was was nothing to explain why this vast of a territory made up of people this different from one another would, would, would find a group rallying to the same banner, to the same hope. But that's exactly what's happening. You can almost imagine Peter's shock hearing that the gospel is working like this. Think about it. I mean, this, this is not some niche product that they're selling that, 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 that's taken hold in one narrow group of people who really just like what each other like, fueled by the fact that people you like and want to be like, like it. It's not like that. This product was, was, was completely unprecedented and these people had no reason to take their cues from one another and yet they're believing. So you can imagine Peter hunkered down in what was probably Rome at the time, hearing, wait, wait, in Pontus? There are Christians? Cappadocia, Really? How did it get there? And realizing that that the gospel is now spread further than what the apostles can personally reach, that they can't travel this far. We have to have some way to communicate to these people what it is they're believing in and what it'll look like to live faithfully for Jesus while they wait for him to return. And that's what Peter takes up in this letter. At least this is the last thing you need to know about where this letter comes from. He's writing to people who had no reason to believe in Jesus, who have rallied to something completely different than what they've ever known. And now he needs to explain to them what this radical new hope means for their lives. Friends, this was not some sort of incremental change that these people had brought into their life. They, they were not just accessorizing a basic view of the world that... that and they're placing it that they grew up with and then just sort of tweaked a little bit when they heard about Jesus. 
they weren't doing what blue jeans wearers do, and they eventually decide, you know what, I think I'm going to take this blue jean genre and mix it up a little bit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to roll up the bottom, like a half an inch roll, just flip it up, just like this, mind blown. Actually, no, that's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, the blue jeans still are pretty much suited to the same context in which you were already wearing them. People were wearing blue jeans 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I don't know how long blue jeans have been around, but they're a known commodity. That's just a slight tweak to something you already take for granted. It doesn't really do much to your life or your place in the, in the world. That's not what's going on here. This wasn't a slight idea change in a worldview that basically stays intact. This was an explosion of unprecedented beliefs that these people have now taken into their lives, but they're new. And they can't look around to the people they normally would have looked to for help. They can't get help from their parents. Usually this is gonna divide them from their parents. They can't go to the village elders to try to find out how to apply what Jesus said to this particular situation. The village's elders could, could, could end up killing them because of what they now believe. So, so they don't have anyone to guide them into this radical new life they've just taken on. Peter takes up that work through this letter. It's hard to imagine, as, as, as one who was raised by Christians among Christians, it's so hard for me to imagine faith in their context. Here they are in these far-flung corners of the Roman Empire, taking on this unprecedented religion that has no institutional backing, in a place where tradition or custom was so powerful. And they were building this all on nothing but the claim that God became human and died and rose again. You can imagine the fragility of these, of these lives, the upside-down identity this brought to them. Probably Peter didn't know them and never met them, but he'd heard about them, and he cared for them, and he wanted to encourage them. And so he wrote this letter as a kind of primer. Some of Paul's letters are written to these very specific situations, maybe one particular teacher who comes in stirring up trouble, and the letter's written to kind of counter that teacher's claims. This letter's not like that. It's really general. It's about basic Christian belief and what it looks like to live in light of who Jesus is. That's the purpose that Peter writes for, to explain what Christianity is all about to some people for whom this religion could bring terrible costs. I think this purpose behind the letter explains the way he refers to them and the way we're going to capture the, the, the series together as we move forward. He refers to them as elect exiles. A much better term than exile here would be resident alien, stranger, sojourner, foreigner. Exile implies that somebody shipped you off somewhere, like happened to Israel when Babylon conquered them. That's actually not what's happened to these friends. This word doesn't have to mean that. It can mean just someone who belongs to one place, to one country, one kingdom, living in another one. So that they're foreign, they're made strange by, by, their, by their allegiance to that other place, that other king. Peter writes to them as resident aliens chosen by God's love, a love that set them apart from the place that they live now, living in one place, belonging to another place. And Peter wrote this letter to show them how, and to show us really, how this new relationship to God, this, this being chosen by his love, set apart from everything else that you knew, shows up in the life that you're living, how the hope shapes your life. 
That's what the letter is all about. So that takes us into question number two. The next big question you want to ask of a letter to try to get your bearings before you get down into the nitty gritty of it is, what's it about? What are the main themes that this letter teaches us about? What did Peter write to these particular people in their time and place that they needed in order to hold on to hope where God had placed them? I want to just introduce you to a couple of the main themes we're going to cover in the weeks to come. And I want to do it starting with just some of the things that are mentioned right here in this first couple of, these first couple of verses. There's four things I want to highlight for you. What this letter is about. It's about what it means to be a Christian, big picture. But what does that mean? Four things. Four things that help us understand what it is to be a resident alien, an elect stranger. Here's the first thing. This letter tells you who you are in Christ. When you're a Christian, who are you? Identity is the first major theme. Peter's going to write to us here about what it means to be marked off by God's love. And you can see it already coming through, even in the first couple of verses of of this first chapter. Every part of his description of them, did you notice this? Ties back to God and his work. Every part of his description defines who they are and ties it back to God who does the defining. He defines them as being elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. I know those words are not familiar in in many cases. Here's what he's doing. Normally they would have known who they were because of where they were from, not anymore. Normally they would have known who they were because of what they're like, their sort of characteristics, their way of thinking. Not anymore, something new has happened. No customs that used to define them will still define them now. Normally they might have known who they were because of who their parents were, their family, their ethnicity. Not anymore. Not their parents, not their hobbies, not their skills, not anything else. They are now defined by, well, by God's foreknowledge of them. It's a word that speaks of love, of discriminating affection. It's not just looking into the future and seeing something. It's a, it's a jam-packed term with, with significance from the Old Testament about God seeing and loving a people. It's the kind of term that was used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. It's the kind of term that, you might use, that I might use to describe my attention to my children in a crowded playground when there's kids everywhere, but I know mine. I look on them and see them and love them with a discriminating love and affection. That's what's happened in the lives of these friends. God, through his foreknowledge, has placed his love on them. And that has changed who they are. The sanctification of the Spirit is is a similar meaning. It means to be set apart. God's Spirit gives life. They're now defined by the fact that his Spirit came in and changed their hearts and what they loved and what they wanted. What seems beautiful to them and true and lovely is now different than what it was before. That's because the Spirit set them apart from what was normal for them before. And gave them a new identity. And they're set apart for, he says, obedience to Jesus. Before, who knows what was orienting their lives, what they were about, what they got up in the morning hoping for. Probably stuff that's not all that different from the things that typically drive us. But now they've got a new identity, a new orientation, and it's obedience to Jesus, to the one who came for them, for the one who sprinkled them with his blood, the one, in other words, who forgave them, who made them clean and worthy. They know because of his death for them, because he gave up everything to make them holy and worthy. They know they can trust him and obey him without being afraid that his ways aren't good for them. All these terms are about identity. Peter's reminded them, even right here at the very beginning, who they are. 
And the rest of his letter is going to help us understand what this identity looks like in practice. Hopefully one of the things you can already see is that this new identity is part of why Peter refers to them as foreigners, as resident aliens that don't belong in the way they used to belong. So they lived in a traditional society, a traditional culture. In those places, places that are like that still today in the world now, your identity comes from groups you belong to. You know who you are because of who your family is or who your tribe is or what your village is or what your livelihood is. Those things are fixed and assigned to you. You get your sense of yourself through understanding what your place is in this society. Peter's saying, not anymore. That's strange. That's foreign in their context. We're not in a traditional society here, not most of us anyway. Most of us don't come from contexts like this one. But what Peter's going to say here about, about Christian identity is no less foreign to where we live now. And we're much more likely now to see the kind of traditional identities that these folks would have lived with as a threat to who we really are. That, that being told from the outside who to be holds you back from being you. We're much more likely to look inside to know who we are, either to build it ourselves, you decide who to be and go be it, like a Build-A-Bear kind of thing, or, or, or to, to actually look inside ourselves and try to find who we are. Self-discovery is more important to us than knowing what role the society has given us to play. And what Peter says here about identity in Christ is just as radically foreign to that idea as it was to the ideas that these friends would have lived with way back when. We're going to be foreign too, where we are now, if we choose to be defined by Jesus instead of by some sort of inner voice or instead of by the the, the roles that society might assign to us. Christian identity isn't based on looking outward at what other people think or expect. And it isn't based on looking inward at what we know ourselves to be through self-discovery. It's based on looking upward to the God who made us and sees us and holds us together across time to knowing who we are to him. We're going to talk a lot about this identity in this series, but what you should know now, just before we even get into it, is that you can be redefined by God's love for you this morning. No matter what you came in here thinking about yourself, even if you think that you are so far gone by the choices you've made that you can't undo, that no one who really knew you could love you, no matter what, no matter how much you might even be right about yourself, you should know that God does know you. He sees everything. He sees even things you've been able to hide from yourself. And it's because he sees you in your need in your vulnerability and in your guilt that he's come for you in Jesus in the first place. He knows you and doesn't run. He knows you and draws closer. And the promise of the gospel is that because Jesus has died a death that he did not deserve to die, he can give you his life even though you don't deserve it. Christian identity is always based on an exchange, not something you build for yourself not something someone else tells you is true, something Jesus has done that you claim by faith. And you can do that this morning. And this letter can help you understand what it means. That's gonna be one of our main focuses for the next weeks, especially in the first couple chapters of the letter. This is a letter about who you are in Christ. Here's the second thing this letter's about. 
It's about who you are in Christ, but it's also about where you belong. This is still tied into identity. Another major theme of this letter is where Christians belong. Christians live with the hope of a future home, a new city, a city that we can barely even imagine, what, what Peter calls an inheritance. Much like Israel looked ahead to this inheritance of land that they knew would be theirs, that no one could take from them. Christians now look ahead to an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable and unfading and that can never be lost. Christians belong to a kingdom that's still coming. Their citizenship is in somewhere else, not this world, but another world. And this is a thing Peter's going to hit hard, especially early in the letter, but really throughout the whole letter. Next week, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 where Peter says you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. Then in chapter 1, verse 13, he's going to say again, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is aiming them at some other belonging still to come that owns their allegiance now and shapes how they relate to everything else that's around them. That kind of orientation what you're looking ahead to, what you're working towards, what you're longing for. That's a huge part of identity. All of us live like that. All of us live with something on our horizon that helps us know what to do with today. I mean, many of you are training for something. You guys are especially perhaps sensitive to this. Think of the impact on your day-to-day of what you're training for, of the life that you're building for yourself. At the end of that journey is some hope that you've got, some vision that you're trying to work at to turn into a reality. It's a basic part of identity. And what Peter is saying here is that Christians get their hope, their orientation from God and his promise of a belonging to his kingdom that shapes their kingdom lives now. That's not earth-shattering, not a rocket science kind of revelation that, that we would look ahead to something else that gives us identity now. But unfortunately, this kind of future, this kind of view of the future, I think has fallen on hard times, even among Christians. As, as, if, as if setting your mind and heart on what you've been promised, and living in solidarity with that kingdom, is, just, is necessarily to, to kind of be dismissive of concerns of now, of, of real needs of real people around you. Like if, if, you, if you talk about heaven, it's because you've taken your focus off all the just debilitating needs of earth and making yourself useless to the people who live around you, to your neighbors that you're called to love. It doesn't have to be that way, friends, for reasons we're going to talk a lot about in the months to come. In, in, in fact, there, there are few things about your life, a few things about the teaching of the Bible that, have, that has more of an impact on your day-to-day now and even on your calling to minister to people in needs now than what you know and expect about your future. Nothing that makes you more useful as a resident alien in this world than your belonging, allegiance to, and passion for that world. So think of how differently you experience, for example, hard things if you know that they're on the way to something good versus if they're just hard. This summer, we took our longest car trip so far as a family all the way down to Boca Raton near Miami to visit some family. It was a long ride, broken up over several days. The longest stretch was about 10 or 11 hours in the car. But I knew that on the back end of that trip was Boca, this wonderful, idyllic world of beaches 
and jungles, jungle-like Everglades airboat rides, exotic alligators and all sorts of stuff we were going to have fun doing. So it shaped how I experienced that time in the car. When I was in college about 15 years ago, I took another car trip. Uh, I was working on the staff of a church uh, for the summer and, and was taking their youth group, I think it was their youth group, from Memphis all the way over to Cleveland where we were going to go uh, rafting. Uh, none of us had ever heard of Bonnaroo at the time. It was year one or two of Bonnaroo. So about 10 or 10.30 at night, we had just come past Murfreesboro. I don't think we'd gotten to Manchester yet. My geography's a little fuzzy. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. But we hit a wall of traffic out of nowhere. And I don't mean slow-moving traffic. I mean parked traffic. And we were parked on I-24 for the entire night until at 6.30 the next morning we finally reached an exit that had been only about a mile from where we first hit the traffic and were able to exit and turn around and drive back to Memphis, which is what we did. Now, probably about middle of the night, I don't know, two or three in the morning, we realized this rafting trip is not going to happen. So at this point, this is just lost time. I experienced that time sitting in my car for roughly the same amount of time as I spent on the way to Boca this summer, very differently than I experienced the time in the car this summer. Because I knew that the future, on the backside of this hard sitting in my car experience, was different in one case than in another. Friends, what, what, what you need to know about Christian identity is that it's always about allegiance to a world that we haven't experienced yet. But that doesn't make it impractical or escapist. That leverages a power of hope for life now and changes how you experience even the things you wish weren't true. We're going to try to understand that better as we move through it. But you need to know this is a basic part of Christian identity and it is not escapist. In fact, it's a challenge to the other error that we're likely to slip into, much more likely than escapism. We're likely to slip into building for ourselves kingdoms, lives in this world as if it weren't always fading away, as if we could hold on to anything we build now. Christian hope is always tethered to something God must build Christian hope always recognizes that unless he builds the house, all of us labor in vain. And it isn't just Peter that says this. It's all over the New Testament. One of my favorite examples is in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a catalog of all these great people from Israel's history who believed when it was hard to believe, but held on in faith. And Abraham is in this catalog. And Abraham, it's it's said, is a person who lived for the promised land while a stranger in the land where he lived. And he says that he lived in tents rather than building a house. And it uses that as a kind of metaphor because he was looking, the writer of Hebrews says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's what Hebrews says about Abraham's faith. He lived in tents in this world because his heart belonged to a city God would build for him one day. And Peter is pulling on that same hope challenging us to live as resident aliens now. Don't act like you belong to this world, like anything you build in this world will last. Live now in tents, in solidarity with the city that God has promised to build and deliver to you as a gift. Now, this leads directly to a third thing about this letter. Peter's going to focus on how we should live. 
And this is going to be something we'll hit hard when we get to the middle of the letter, middle of chapter 2, all the way through most of chapters 3 and 4. This hope shapes life now, and that affects how we live towards our government or how we live towards our marriages or, in this case, even language about slaves and masters. We're going to get into sections where Peter is applying the hope of a coming kingdom to the present reality that his friends were living with. We're going to try to track with them. And the things that he's going to say to them made them foreigners in their time and their place. They will challenge us in our time and our place too. And if we were to accept the things that he says, it will put us outside the mainstream of the people who live around us now. It's going to raise questions like, what does it mean to honor the emperor for the Lord's sake, practically? What does it mean when you feel like your government is corrupt? What does it mean when you're part of a democracy where you sort of have some of the power that an emperor would have had back when, when Peter was writing? What does it mean that, that slaves are supposed to submit to their masters? We know how those texts have been abused to justify slavery in our country, not to mention in other places. What are we going to do with that? How do we take that message and use it today? And what about wives submitting to their husbands or husbands called to, to care for their wives as, quote, the weaker vessel? What does that mean? What would it look like for us to embrace this teaching and understand it in a way that's true to both its context and ours? We're going to be unpacking very nitty-gritty details like that throughout this letter because that's the goal that Peter wrote for, how to live now in light of that hope. And finally, finally what this letter will point us to is what we should expect from the world. A major theme in this letter is opposition, persecution. Because if you start to live for another world while you're stuck in this one, while you're deployed here and now, then you're going to show up with a different life than, the, than, than, than what's common around you. And sometimes that's not going to be pleasant for the other people living around you. Sometimes that's actually going to challenge them. Maybe it'll remind them of things that they'd rather forget. Maybe it'll challenge them with, with ways that ex, in ways that expose things that they take for granted things that they maybe prize, that they want to hold on to. One way or another, you're going to be sticking out like a sore thumb if you live as a resident alien in the way this letter calls for. And that brings opposition. And probably what Peter's writing to is not some sort of systematic oppression or persecution where they're being hounded and killed. That happens later in the church's history. This is just about the kind of opposition that comes when your family doesn't like your new religion, when your village doesn't understand what you now won't do that you used to do before. When others around you don't have categories for what you're doing. When what you believe makes you seem antisocial. What we're going to try to do is understand what we should expect if we live as resident aliens now in our time and in our place. And what we're going to be challenging is the very notion that it's possible for us as Christians to live in an accommodating host culture. Sometimes, depending on where the politics of the moment are blowing, Christians will talk more about let's get ready for persecution or talk more about let's make sure we put a Christian stamp on the world we're living in now. Both of those impulses are out of step with what Peter's going to be teaching us in this letter. What Peter's going to tell us is that no matter how friendly your government may seem towards Christian interests or no matter how explicitly they try to persecute you, you will always be a resident alien and you will be posed with certain dangers from governments that seem friendly to you that are different dangers from governments that seem hostile to you. 
But what you should know is that you're going to face dangers from your context. There's no such thing as an accommodating host culture. It, it, it one, in, in one type of, of oppression, you may be forced to the loss of your property or loss of opportunities or even thrown into prison or killed. Some Christians live like that. In others, you might be tempted to lose the purity of your witness, to confuse something that seems friendly to Christianity, a kind of cultural generic version of Christianity for the real thing, and think that you're actually at peace and at home when you're not. But either way, you will not belong and you will face dangers from your context that you need to be aware of and ready to handle in faith. And that's what this letter is meant to help us with. This letter is meant to give us a clearer sense of who we are in Christ so that we can live now in solidarity with the hope of then. And what I want to do here, just to close this message and to prepare us for what's coming, is pray that God will shape us by his word, as otherwise we have no hope. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we, we trust that we need what's in this letter, and we also trust, because we've experienced it, we won't be able to understand it on our own. We know that there is much in us that resists what you've said. So we pray that you would break that down and help us to be soft landing places for the word of the gospel. I pray that you would help us to be more faithful in our own individual lives, but also in our community to representing your kingdom in this time and place that you've put us. Thank you for a gospel worth holding on to, worth being set apart by. We pray that you would make us clear and effective witnesses to it through our time together this fall. In Jesus' name, amen.